one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Dear boss, I keep hearing the police have caught me. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I'm down on whores, and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work that last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. The infamous Dear Boss letter, which gave Whitechapel's infamous spree killer a name, is largely thought to be a hoax, concocted by two journalists of the Star newspaper to keep a dying story alive. As with the Soho Strangler, by mangling the facts, so a mere man now morphed into a monster, their meddling had distracted the public, the rest of the press, and even the police from finding the culprit. In truth, neither killer left any clues to their identity. With no fingerprints, no witnesses, and baffled police suggesting a smattering of suspects, possibly as convenient scapegoats. With the inquests of French Fifi, Marie Codden and Dutch Lair, concluding that they were murdered by persons unknown. The cases were closed. The killer went silent, and with no news to report, a restless press moved on. But who was the Soho Strangler? A man, a myth or a monster? A bohemian, a gay or a Jew? And with a taste for petite French brunettes, was a fourth victim in his sights. The police thought he was a man, possibly a punter, with a past of violence against women. Whereas the press had alluded to a suspect. Described as a gangster, a ponce, a vice king, a dope peddler, a white slaver, and said to be the most feared man in the London underworld. They never gave a name to this crime boss, but as a criminal who could kill at will, exuded an aura of fear, and had the power to corrupt, 
making the police look away and the press pose a cunning distraction to the public. He was a real strangler in Soho. As a man, a myth and a monster, Max Le Rocan, also known by those who dared to speak his name as Max the Red, Red Max and Russian Max, went by many aliases. Some we know, most we don't, as he assumed new names and identities to disguise his many crimes. With his extensive criminal record listing him as Kemfesti, Kassenborg, Cassell, Emile Allard, Max Allard, and known locally as Mr. Cohen. Using a multitude of aliases and forged documents in multiple countries, his true history is a mystery. Born on either the 3rd or 5th of December 1879, Maya Cassell, known as Max, was one of at least two sons to Hermann or Hyman and Mina Cassell, Russian Jews living in Riga, now the capital of Latvia. Being barely five foot five, but weighing in as a hefty 16 stone, Max was physically imposing. And as the police report declared, he had enormous strength and was greatly feared by those who knew him. With piercing brown eyes and fair red hair, Max the Ginger, as he was also known, exuded a real charm when he wanted to. But with his face and body a patchwork of past wounds, a broken nose, lost teeth, and his left cheek and neck slashed in a knife fight, there was no denying that Max was dangerous. Barking in a gruff, menacing growl. Those who openly spoke against him stated he was a violent bully, offensive and arrogant, and a quick-tempered, selfish thug. Who attacked the meek with impunity. Who stalked the streets unreproached. And being fast with a ligature and his fists, he often spat mocking barbs. Laughing as his terrified victim was strangled into submission. No one knows when or why he left Riga, but in 1901, as a well-dressed, respectable Jewish boy with an honest trade, 20-year-old Max was running a bootmaker's in the Paris suburb of Rue Pigali. It was a decent business which made a little money, paid its bills, and drew no attention from the authorities. But that was the point. As using an alias, this little shoe shop was a front to hide his real income. Sex. Rue Pigali was Paris's red light district, the French Soho or Whitechapel, where cruel men like Max pimped out barely pubescent girls, selling their virginity to seedy strangers for a fee they would never see. 
whether he sold her is unknown. But one girl, pimped out in Pagali, would be later known in Soho as French Fifi. But with pimping being precarious, having been arrested on several charges of larceny, dope dealing, running a brothel, living off of moral earnings, and the assault of his girls, as he would call them, known in the trade as the meat. In October 1903, under the alias of Kempfesti, Max was deported from France. For any honest individual, this banishment would be crippling. But by adopting a new alias, Max simply started again. From 1905, he ran a cafe in the Belgian city of Antwerp as a front for his ever-expanding stranglehold on the white slave trade. Until 1914, when he was prosecuted but ultimately dismissed owing to a lack of evidence and was expelled for inciting minors into debauchery. Max did not care about the meat he sold, even though, with the age of consent being just 13, some of his girls were only children. Fueled by money, power and arrogance, Max travelled wherever he pleased, and having established a network of brothels in Buenos Aires, Antwerp, Paris, Montreal and London, he shipped a fresh slew of pretty young girls to distant cities, as even to English punters, French girls have a taste of the exotic. Exported like cattle to a strange new land, a wonderful dream would be dangled before every girl. She would be hastily married to make deportation impossible, stripped of her passport, and then sold into the sex trade. Isolated, threatened, beaten, and living in fear, they would be indebted for life to their pimps and ponces, serving a never-ending procession of drunk and violent men until as unloved and middle-aged spinsters, with debts, criminal records, and possible addictions, they were physically and mentally spent. In 1914, Max was shipping girls between almost every continent, including Australia. Having acquired a French-Canadian passport under the alias of Emile Allard, with his cover as a West End jeweler, As with many elements of criminality, it is said, but unprovable, that Max ran the Iron Gang, a feared group of pimps, extorters, and white slavers in Soho, until 1925, when they were all charged with running a bogus marriage scheme for the purposes of prostitution. With one witness, described as a prostitute, and an informer, Four men were deported, but Max was neither convicted nor charged. In 1933, 
three years before the murders. Max Cassell, alias Emile Allard. A well-dressed man in a sharp suit, a trilby hat, gold rings and cufflinks, who carried a magnifying glass as he sold jewellery, having bought it first from Debenhams, had moved into a very modest first-floor flat at 37 James Street in Marleybone, where he lived alone with his white Highland Terrier. He was so anonymous, it was almost as if he didn't exist. With his wealth hidden, his identity unknown, and his businesses seemingly legit. When the police were hunting Leia's killer, one of the reasons Red Max didn't appear on their list is that he didn't have a criminal conviction in England. As a crime boss in Soho, Max had the ability to be powerful and yet invisible. By May 1936, three petite brunettes of similar circumstances were strangled in their Soho flats by an unseen assailant. The police would state, there is nothing to show that there is a connection between any of these cases. Despite the most exhaustive inquiries, no evidence was found upon which suspicion could be attached to any known person, and it is unlikely that these crimes will ever be solved. In the hunt for the killer, the police searched far and wide, and yet not once in any of the police files does Red Max appear as a suspect. Three streets southeast of Lexington Street, where Jean-Marie Cotton once lived. Two streets south of Old Compton Street and Archer Street, where French Fifi and Dutch Lay applied their trades. And over Shaftesbury Avenue, in an area now called Chinatown, lived a sex worker called French Suzette. Born in Paris on an unspecified date in 1910, Suzanne Boudin came from very little and sought what was said to be a better life in England. As a pretty young brunette, with a girl-like frame, a dark bob, and rosebud lips, sex work was an obvious choice for an unskilled woman who could lure in lustful men. In 1924, at the tender age of just 14, Suzanne married Emile Bertrand, a violin maker, and together they had a daughter called Lucette. Little is known of their married life, but already working as a prostitute, it was said that Suzanne had abandoned them, fleeing to England and leaving a husband and child. Like many pieces of meat, 
shipped into Soho's red light district. On the 18th of March, 1933, Suzanne married John Naylor, a man she had never met before, and having been paid two pounds for his time. After a few months of married life, they later split, leaving Mrs. Naylor with a passport and immunity from deportation. French Suzette had many convictions for prostitution. But unlike the others, she lived in relative luxury. Many prostitutes were flat-farmed, as were the law decreeing that a brothel consisted of two or more prostitutes living or working in a single dwelling. The solution was simple. A series of flats subdivided into smaller lodgings by a partition, with a bed and a hot plate installed to add an air of respectability. Just like French Fifi's flat on Archer Street, although who actually owned that house will never be known. In contrast, 35 to 36 Little Newport Street was a spacious four-story maisonette covering two floors, which was furnished with artwork, soft furnishings, an electric massager, and a portable gramophone. Always dressed in fine furs, expensive cosmetics, and Parisian perfumes, although she still had sex with men for money, her clients were exclusive, her prices were high, and her life was easier than most. Being the mistress, of Roger Vernon, an infamous white slaver, and now a bitter rival of Red Max. What's most baffling about the Soho Stranger killings is the lack of motive. Every murder has a motive whether robbery or revenge, pride or politics, insanity or mistaken identity, bloodlust or sexual urges. These murders had none of that. Each death was silent and swift. Each crime scene was untouched and clean. And each corpse, in two cases, were mistaken for something innocent. With layers either being personal or having not used a stocking, the flat iron only became essential to silence her. These three crimes could have been a coincidence, a cock-up, or controlled by someone with power. On the night of Sunday the 3rd of November 1935, French Fifi willingly invited her assailant into her Archer Street flat. And it's likely that she made him a cup of tea and maybe a plate of eggs. In the bedroom, no sexual assault took place. But in an action described by her friends as odd, she calmly removed only her left stocking, in which she kept her money 
which went missing. But did he take it? Or was he owed it? And having cleared her debt, did this man, who felt that he owned her, close her account with her death? A few weeks before her murder, her neighbour, Millicent Warren, heard Fifi argue and struggle with a foreign man in her flat, who Fifi later said, got hold of my throat. Who this man was is unknown. It may seem strange for a murder to be mistaken for a suicide by such experienced detectives, a doctor and a pathologist. But it was. At the crime scene, they found no fingerprints to pinpoint to a suspect. But maybe he wore gloves. No witnesses were spotted. But possibly they were too scared to speak. By her bed were letters suggesting a suicidal depression. Or maybe this scene was staged. And with her autopsy taking three weeks to come to the conclusion of murder based on probability. Were these professionals simply trying to get to the truth without jumping to a hasty conclusion? Or was the delay deliberate? The Daily Herald would later state, For the police to allow such a time to elapse between the body's discovery and the cause of death being announced is almost without parallel. What we do know of the culprit is that having rendered her semi-conscious, and shattered a dental plate with a single punch. That he was a big man, strong and violent, who could charm and control her. On Thursday the 16th of April 1936, the body of 43-year-old French national Jean-Marie Cotton was found strangled in her flat. Again, with no fingerprints, clues or witnesses. The police collared a gay lodger who had soiled a mattress. But with the evidence described as purely circumstantial, James Allen Hall was dismissed. The investigation described Marie Cotton as a woman of good character, and there was no evidence to suggest that at any time she'd been a prostitute. And yet she had possible links to the sex trade. Her lodger Dorothy Neary was a prostitute. She was married briefly to an Englishman which sealed her British citizenship. She lived on a known thoroughfare occupied by sex workers. Her boyfriend Carlo reputedly paid her for sex and it was said, just days before her death, that he had accused her of having a ponce. Marie Cotton only spoke to her closest friends about her fear of the Jew. An unidentified man 
who helped her out in the past, who was reclaiming a debt, whose surname she had only said once, possibly by mistake, and whose impending arrival had left her shaking with fear. On Tuesday the 14th of April 1936, just two days before her death, she left a note on her door which read, Mr. Cohen, shall not be long, gone to Marlborough Street, J. Lanza. That night, the mysterious Mr. Cohen failed to show up. With scant information, the police stated that finding him was an impossible task. And although Mr. Cohen was mentioned at the inquest, Red Max was not. Oddly, it was amidst the police's own papers that Mr. Cohen was listed as a known alias for Red Max. And yet he wasn't considered a suspect in Marie Cotton's murder. But why? On Saturday the 9th of May 1936, a few streets from both murders, Dutch Lair, a 24-year-old prostitute, was found strangled and bludgeoned to death in her own bed. Again, there were no fingerprints, suspects or clues. She wasn't French, but being a small brunette, maybe some of these details are coincidental. Links between Leia and Max are as scant as you would expect. When questioned, Ruby Walker stated, I don't know if Leia had been to France, or if someone had come from France to murder her. I knew Fifi, but I didn't know Max. I have never seen French Fifi or Leia Hines together. Even though they were both two pleasant prostitutes, who had lived and worked just streets apart for the last six years. The links are tenuous. It's likely the Leia was flat-farmed, as her landlord had offered her another flat, having first threatened to evict her owing to non-payment of debts. It's likely that being a British prostitute that Leia was killed for selling sex on a patch run by French ponces like Max. We know that Leia was married briefly, using aliases to Robert Smith. And in an odd connection, they held their wedding reception at number 5 Old Compton Street, the home of a French ponce, which the police file states, Red Max did frequent. And yet if Max was the last man seen with Leia, and whose description, aged 25 to 30, slim to medium build, fresh complexion, brown hair, long black coat and no hat, was fed to every police force in the country and led the course of the investigation. Why doesn't it match Max? Who is aged 55, well built, scarred complexion, with a mop of fair reddish hair, and was dressed in an expensive three-piece suit. 
Was this accurate? A mistake? Or was it deception, concocted by a corrupt police force, funded by a Soho crime boss, and aided by the press, who added their own monstrous flourishes? Was the aim to ensure that these murders would never be solved, and that the Soho Strangler would never be caught? Nineteen thirty five and thirty six saw the swift decline of Max's once great empire. With Maltese gangs like the Messina brothers and the Vassallo gang muscling into the French run sex trade, fifty five year old Max was far from the man he once was. Money was tight. Mr. Cohen was cracking down on debtors. And one week before the murder, Max had his finger sliced up in a knife fight in a Berwick Street cafe over a few quid. In Britain, Max had always maintained his duality, that of a seemingly legitimate West End jeweller to hide his illicit gains, which kept him free from police suspicion and even helped him evade deportation when everyone but him in the Iron Gang was convicted back in 1925. He had no criminal conviction in this country, but following the arrest of an associate for the possession of a firearm, Max was put under surveillance and said to be a police informer in both London and Paris, that Max had handed over his associates to save his own skin. It could be a coincidence, but the Daily Herald would state French Fifi was believed to have given evidence which recently led to a sensational court case. Her real name, nor none of her aliases, appear as a witness in the reporting of that case. But then again, with this three-month trial, Beginning on the 21st of November 1935, Fifi had been murdered just two weeks before. On Thursday the 23rd of January 1936, at about 6pm, Max left his modest flat at 37 James Street. With time's heart and his pride dented, even his nephew would state he did not appear to have much money. In Soho, he once ruled the roost. But being overweight, old and alone, his glory days had long since gone. To compound his shame, to raise his volcanic blood pressure, and to cause his thick, hairy fists to clench whenever this debt was mentioned. Eighteen months earlier, he was forced to go cap in hand to get a loan of £25, £1,300 today, from a white slaver who now ruled large swathes 
of Soho's sex trade. This man was a French pimp called Roger Vernon. With debt being called in, Max unable to pay, and Roger spreading word that this so-called kingpin didn't have two halfpennies to rub together. At 6.50pm, he rang the doorbell of 35 to 36 Little Newport Street. An elegant little lodging, occupied by one of Roger's prostitutes, who was also his mistress. A small petite brunette, known as French Suzette. With menace and possibly murder on his mind, Max didn't draw any attention as he waited for the door to open. He didn't wear a disguise, just a grey suit, a dark overcoat, a shirt and a tie. As the black street door opened, Max removed his hat, his face clearly visible to those in this busy market street, as he knew no one who valued their life would dare to speak his name. Even on a street full of traders, he could appear and vanish like a gust of wind floating on the breeze. In his pockets, he didn't carry a weapon. No gun, no knife, no ligature. As being a well-built brute who was handy with his fists, he could easily crush a man's neck with two hands and a woman's with just one. Opened by Marcella, the prostitute's maid. This trembling help led him up the narrow staircase, past the closed club, and to the private room above to meet with French Suzette. In total, the Soho Strangler would murder four women, although his motive would remain a mystery. But was Red Max this maniac? Did a corrupt police force hide his crimes? Did an eager press distract the public with his lies? Did this crime boss order the murders of French Fifi, Marie Cotton and Dutch Leia? to usurp any rivals and erase any informers? Or was this as simple as a once great white slaver who had fallen on hard times and was recouping his debts and exacting revenge, no matter how petty? Given enough power, money and control, surely it would take a criminal kingpin, someone like Max, to make a murder look like a suicide, to vanish any witness, to erase any evidence, to lead the police to collar a series of scapegoats, and to ensure that none of these murders ever went to criminal trial. Red Max, alias Mr. Cohen, 
is the most likely suspect to be the Soho Strangler. And yet he wasn't. Only this wasn't corruption, a deception, or incompetence by the police. As before Marie Cotton and Dutch Leia were even murdered, Red Max was already dead. Part 8 of 10 of The Soho Strangler continues next week. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Oh, fuck, that was a bugger to... Bugger, bugger, that was a bit of a bugger to record that one. Christ. Oh. Let's hope I can get the edit down and make it nice and nice and uh, light. Oh, Christ. I oh, may have slightly overwritten it in places. Oh, sometimes I can, I can whiz through it and go, oh, that was nice and easy. This one was not. I think because there's a lot of details in it and oh. Oh, look at all that sunlight. I'm taking my, my pillows away from my, my window, which acts as my soundproofing. You often see footage of people going, oh, look at my look at my amazing studio. Yep, I have, I have a very cheap studio. You don't need much. You don't need much. You don't need all this fancy shit. You don't need all these mixing desks. You don't need, you don't need three monitors. Fuck's sake, three monitors. Jesus. I have a laptop and one microphone with a little bit of... Uh, sponge over the top of it that's all you need 
fuck's sake oh anyway welcome to extra mile oh, unscripted unedited i'm gonna take your little hat off there you go your hat is off oh i'm not gonna make a cup of tea because i've had about 50 today while i was trying to write trying to finish writing this so i'm gonna oh yes no popping on the kettle which is all good i'm having i'm having a da 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 there we go I don't want you do, 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 do. Oh, Diet Coke. The drug of choice. Until it gives you a bloody Diet Coke headaches. Oh, and what's in this box? Da, 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 da. Belgian bun. Only one, because I, I, I ate some. I shoved it down my big fat cake hole and it was delicious. Oh, so... Uh, if you're new to Extra Mile, unscripted, un- this is the unscripted, unedited bit. We're going to do a quiz in a bit. I'll uh, give you some extra details about the case. But first, normally we have a bit of a waffle. What's going on in the in the wonderful world of uh, boaty life? Oh, it's bloody cold out. It's freezing outside. And my water filter is broken, which is really annoying under the sink. Luckily, I'm near a big water tap outside. But water filter is broken. Uh, I sheared off the other day. I took it into some chandleries where you can kind of buy boat stuff and all of them stared at it and went, we've no idea what that is. So the thing I have is defunct. Apparently it discontinued about 20 years ago. So annoying. So annoying. So I've I've had to buy a new one, which I don't even know if it fits. Really annoying. And then it's cold and I've been working really hard trying to get all these episodes done and I missed three fuel boats going past with all the coal and stuff on board so i've got no coal so it's 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 gonna be sub-zero tonight and i've got no coal on board oh normally that never happens because i'm nice and organized but not this time i just keep missing them they 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 whiz they they go by really slowly but they don't let you know they're coming they don't ring a bell they just chug along like every other boat and you you look and go oh fuck and they've gone oh so yeah oh bollocks um what else is going on oh yes so i uh, um this is probably about three or four weeks ago but i did uh, an interview with the wonderful dom delaghi of soho bites podcast um uh, we were discussing uh, the soho strangler but also the film that came off the back of it so 1940 i think i say 1942 but it's actually 41 uh there's a film called east of piccadilly which is based on the soho strangler murders it's amazing there's loads of films out there about the jack the ripper but almost none about in fact there's only one that we know of of the soho strangler it's a bit it's tenuously linked as well so uh i sat down with dom uh we uh, did uh we recorded i recorded the bit about the soho strangler and then he got melon and they discussed the film so i've put a link in the show notes have a listen um unfortunately the so luckily dom had it on his hard drive we were in a pub one night um I think it was his January, and I just haven't because I know I know he loves all he's like because his podcast is all about um, films set. And I use the word set in Soho because, as Dom rightly says, almost none of them are shot in Soho. They're meant to be, but they're not. Uh, And just because I knew I'd I'd heard of Easter Piccadilly, I just happened to say to him, "Have you ever heard of Easter Piccadilly?" And he was like, "Yeah, I've I've got it on my hard drive, and I'm meant to be doing it for Soho Bites, but I haven't got round to it yet." And I was like, "So he he, I've watched it." It's 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 an interesting film, but it's not worth you hunting out. It's it's it'll be a pig to find. But uh, if you want to uh, listen listen to that episode, there'll be a link in the show notes. Well done, Michael. I've got to remember to add that into the link afterwards. So yeah, do that. Um, Belgian bun coming up. 
and a bit of Diet Coke, lovely. So let's do some quiz questions uh, and then we'll dive into some extra stuff about this case. And then I'm gonna have to go into uh, Starbucks and edit the flip out of this episode. This is gonna take ages. Uh, question number one, what newspaper is it said that the journalists of the infamous Dear Boss, Dear Boss letter, um, which is in the era of Jack the Ripper, although here I've written Jack the Riper, um, what newspaper is it said that journalists of the infamous Dear Boss letter worked at? That's not even a good sentence, that one. You know what I mean. Question number two. What country was Max born in? Question number three. What was Max's birth name? Question number four. What wounds did Max have to his face and body? Question number five. What part of Paris did he run a brothel? Question number six, under what alias was Max deported from France? Question number seven, in which Belgian city, ooh, Belgian buns, in which Belgian city did Max run a cafe and uh, his initial sex trade empire? Question number eight, on what street did Max live? Question number nine, what kind of dog did Max have? Can you remember that one? And question number 10, what job did the husband of French Suzette, what job did the husband of French Suzette, real name Suzanne Bertrand, who's mentioned at the end, what, oh, fuck's sake. So French Suzette, alias Suzanne Bertrand, what job did her husband do? There we go. That's, that's better. So that's her husband, not, not her pimp, not her boyfriend, Roger Vernon. So, oh, let's dive into some uh stuff about this don't forget i haven't edited this yet so i might balls up some of these questions i don't edit this this thing this extra mark what's the point no this is just that's the whole point it's it's not meant to be edited so uh if i do ball something up there we go it, it happens it happens uh so max his aliases um I spent months, like year, months going through the police files, years in researching this. And even on my original walks I used to do on Murder Mile, I put in about Roger Vernon and Red Max Cassell in there. But I was doing the kind of tabloid version of kind of how it was represented. Uh, this is entirely different. This is e exactly what it is. Uh, this is uh, as it was presented at the time to the police. Um, so we're, we're diving into this. We're diving into Red Max uh, potentially as the strangler but of course he wasn't the strangler this is this is i wrote it in big notes in my little diary here on my, on my i have a bible and i have all of my notes like it's this episode alone is 106 pages long there you go they're, they're just my notes to keep me on target and make sure i have not everything that goes in um but with Max, um, it was only when I was going through the original police files that I, I saw that locally in our own Soho, he was known as Mr. Cohen. Now, it could be that he was the Mr. Cohen with reference to uh, Marie Cotton. It could be, but interestingly with the press, um, it, we only know that he's called Mr. Cohen because of Dorothy Neary, who was uh, the um, Marie Cotton's lodger the prostitute um now the press i didn't put this in the episode because i just thought we've already kind of covered this the fact that the press are mangling all the details the press called him harry cohen his name wasn't harry cohen there was 
a guy who worked at James Allen Hall's uh, premises called Harry Cohen, and I think they either took the name Harry Cohen, as in the, the, the big kind of movie producer, or they assumed it was Harry Cohen, or they mistook him for the other Harry Cohen who worked at James Allen Hall's place of residence. But when I went through the uh, Dorothy's original statements, she says Cohen. She never says Harry Cohen. She just says Mr. Cohen. Because she only heard it once, and that's all she heard. So, um, so it's interesting. It, he could be the Mr. Cohen. Um, but when you, I had to keep it really discreet on here, because obviously, the, as the timeline goes, you've got French Fifi murdered, start November 1935. Then the way I presented it in this series is that we go to Marie Cotton in April 1936, then we got... Three weeks afterwards, you've got a Dutch Lair, May 1936. But Red Max was murdered January 1936. So uh, he, he couldn't have committed those murders at all. I mean, he may... There was... The press did make connections between him and Fifi, but it was all very tenuous. It was like she was under the protection of Red Max. But this is the whole point about the uh, the sex trade there's nothing written down there's no contracts you don't they they don't keep a list of all their prostitutes so the police can turn up and go oh can we have a look at your list of prostitutes and they go yeah here you are officer have a look it doesn't exist everything's in code or they don't have it written down because therefore they can't get arrested for you know living off of moral earnings so the press were just making up bullshit or kind of hearsay and shit like that so uh they could have been connected he could have known them it's likely, given the fact that he worked in the sex trade, that he would have known most of the full-time prostitutes. Don't forget, as we as we mentioned in this quite a lot, there's a real difference between kind of full-time prostitution, casual prostitution, or just kind of, you know... When women are going through difficult times, going out, picking up, picking up men who pay uh, for, for their drinks, their meals, a uh, hotel room, and in return they feel that they've got to put out that kind of prostitution in its own in a different that's kind of more what they say is casual prostitution um so max multitude of uh, aliases in there max Clan, which is max the ginger or, or max the redhead depending on what way you put it across he wasn't fully redhead he was kind of fairish with a, a reddish mop uh also known as max the red um and Russian Max, there's a lot of confusion there. People seem to think uh, he was a communist. He, he, he technically. Mm, I need to be careful now because I already, almost gave away a quiz question. Where he lived was technically Russia, but now it is not Russia. So um, uh, he had multiple um, names. I need to make sure I don't say that one because that's one of the quiz questions. Uh, one of them was Max Kassenberg. Various spellings of that. Uh, Emile Allard, which was the French Canadian passport he got. We're going to dive into more of that next week because we've got uh, another interesting suspect that we're going to dive into. Oh, I need to be careful that I don't give away too much about next week's episode, but that leads us down another path path of the whole French Canadian thing because because back then France, uh, sorry, uh, Canada was part of uh, Britain. Therefore, because he was he would classify himself as French Canadian. Therefore he would have access to Canada. He would have access to France and the, and Britain as well. So that's kind of why a lot of people did that. Um, he also used the, the alias of uh, Konigsfest, which apparently was his mother's maiden name. Um, he's, 
Red Max is a nightmare to track down. He really is. That's why I've got two dates of birth for him. They're the two nearest that I can get. Unfortunately, even on these police records, um, I, I got some of his police records from France. But even with those, because because it's not a database, you know, there's no one sitting there on a computer going blip, 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 blip. Um, literally they have to rely on the information that they have and the information that he gives them so he can give them an alias he can give them a false date of birth you know he could just turn around and go sorry about that i didn't realize so yeah so in there is all his aliases uh but he was known as mr cohen locally um his sister fanny lived locally uh she uh, lived in gold is green um his father was either called hyman or Herman, there's two different versions, so I'll put both of them in there. His nephew, Alfred Abraham, uh, sorry, Alfred Brahman, not Brahman, who is uh, Dorothy Neary's boyfriend, the man who kept her. Similar, similar name, but not the same one. He also lived in Golders Green. Didn't seem to know, well, he said he didn't seem to know a lot about, as he called him, my uncle Emile Allard. So even his own uncle, he referred to his uncle as Uncle Emile Allard, which was his fake name. Uh, That was the one he got uh, via the uh, legal passport. We don't know if there was a a real Emile Allard who he took the passport from, probably someone who had died or whether it was just a name he made up. Um, Max also had uh, a brother. Um, Details seem to say that he was invalid, an invalid living in Paris. But when I dived into the details about that, it appears that just before, uh, just before, the, oh, gotta be so careful. The culmination of this episode, um, he was Max's brother was stabbed in an affray in Paris. It's going to be so easy when I when I do this with the the Soho Strangler nuggets. When we do that week of all the details, I don't have to worry about giving away spoilers. Um, so everyone seemed to know him as Max uh, as mentioned he was a Polish Jew so do you know um, um, Marie Cotton was uh, was fearful of a man who was big, he was terrifying who who physically uh, she found very terrifying Who he was Jewish he went by the name Cohen could be about billion Cohen well not billion obviously a, a, a load of Cohen's in kind of in the London area was it him? We don't know. We don't know. She gave away nothing. She didn't tell Carlo about it, so we don't know. Um, he was, so he was 16 stone, um, uh, 170 centimetres tall, which is about 5 foot 5. Some people say 5 foot 7. He had a mop of fair reddish hair, brown eyes, a marked furrow under his chin. He had some wounds, which are a question, so I, uh, one of the quiz questions, so I can't tell you about that. See how these quiz questions make it really annoying, <laughs> Um, he was always well well dressed, very well presented. If you're a uh, patron subscriber, you'll see we've got photos of Max over time, so they're in- really interesting to see. Uh, in one of them, he actually looks like the devil. Um, he's always well presented. He always liked to represent his wealth. He wore a flash suit, a big overcoat, shirt and tie, uh, a grey trilby, and lots of gold jewellery reflecting his wealth. Because, of course lots of toss pots who always love to be dripping in gold jewelry and they're normally the assholes you just think you haven't worked a day in your life um police report states that he was offensive arrogant he uh, he will dive into more about this next week but he very much pretty much kept to himself he, he lived alone with his little doggy um 
a violent man, uh, very much a bully. He didn't seem to have many friends, but we, we hope it depends whether I do it in the next episode uh, or not at all. Um, he seemed to be stealing from his friends, conning them. He didn't have a lot of people around him who trusted. He, I think he got to the point where he was big and powerful and he could get away with whatever he wanted. But when his world started to collapse, everyone who was around him, who was fearful of him, just walked away. Joe, he was, he was rude to people. He was insulting. He was quick-tempered. He was handy with his fists, with knives, guns. But he often cheated associates out of their money. And it is said that he was potentially a um what's the word i used earlier on uh a police informer obviously there's nothing about that in the police files but of course there wouldn't be would there um so uh, uh what else we got um it, so he started off pretty young as far as we know uh, we know he, came from a jewish jewish family we don't know what his father did but he trained as a bootmaker when he was when he was a young boy he got into petty criminality early and learned to use aliases as covers around 1900 he was in paris he was running a bootmaking business um and used that to hide his crimes this is what he used throughout so even when he was in london he was pretending to be kind of a a uh what he used to do he would as mentioned in the episode he would carry a little magnifying glass around him so and, and business cards that would say he's a, a a west london jeweler jeweler but really what he would do is go to debenhams on Longacre in covent garden he'd go in he'd buy some really cheap crappy jewelry and then he'd go into kind of pubs and clubs and sell them off there so he wouldn't make any money off it but at least he could say it, people in places would go oh yeah that's uh yeah he's just a he's just a jeweler but it, that was kind of his cover to make sure that the police weren't like oh where does he get his money from they just go oh he's just a a, a low time uh jeweler when really he was kind of a big time a big time blokey um um his criminal record uh, isn't available. It wasn't in the police files. You'll, as you'll learn next week, it's it was really hard because next week's episode takes us really deep into kind of Paris and Canada. It takes us a long way. So unfortunately, his criminal record isn't there. I've only got fragments of it. Um, but we know he's, he dealt in stolen goods, drugs, prostitution, white slavery, and had violence against his prostitutes. Um, 24th of October, 1902, he was sentenced in Paris for... Uh, vagabondage special which is apparently wandering uh, wandering abroad and selling drugs and he served an unspecified amount of time in prison uh, October two, uh, October 1903 he was expelled from France what else we got um, he seems to he moved around a lot I mean he, he moved to Buenos Aires and lived in a house of a man named Kajan Mardos uh, and he was noted of, as having lived with prostitutes and lived off their earnings this seems to be his thing whenever he gets booted out he moves somewhere else he gets a new alias he comes back he sets up places elsewhere it's like prostitution is in every country there's not a single there's probably not there's not a single town in this in this country where there's not prostitution so you know wherever he goes he can set up something new uh so yeah he was expelled from france he was expelled from belgium um he was in london uh, in soho alleged supposedly running the soho's iron gang although this is un we're unable to verify this but then again it's criminality it, it, you know as, say, as mentioned they don't really write it down gangs don't go oh yeah we are you are part of my gang 
Um, big gap in his history, kind of 1914 to 1920. It's there's nothing there. We kind of we don't know where he is. We know he uh, got his passport in and around that moment, but we um, well, as we'll find out. Uh, we know what happened to that next week. Uh, April 1920, he was back in Antwerp, this time off living off a Belgian passport. Again, possibly fake. Uh, living off the proceeds of prostitution, and he was expelled November 1920, and it's there he came to London briefly. Um, 1926, he applied for permission to live in Paris, even though he'd been expelled, uh, to work as a shoe merchant, and he lived there under the name of Max Meyer Cassell. He stated that he was living in London at that time at 152 Shaftesbury Avenue. So he clearly has connections to London by that point. Uh, don't forget he's part of the London gang in Soho prior to that. So he already knows this area well. Uh, and it's hard for them to prove that he's living on Shaftesbury Avenue or said he was. Um, and of course, his family may have already moved here by that point. Um, big gap between there and nineteen early 1930s. Um, we know he was doing the same kind of scheme where he was running uh, prostitutes from South America to Europe. Um, he'd already started doing the same in Canada and Australia uh, and obtaining British nationality for uh, Canadian women and Australian women to kind of come to uh, Britain and like likewise. So some British prostitutes he was shipping out there as well. Um, in 1933, he was sentenced in France for transporting a girl to Brazil. Um, he was charged with white slavery and drug dealing, but he didn't, uh, as far as we know, he didn't uh, go to prison for that. Uh, he may have been sentenced in his ab abstinence, absentia, uh, but yeah, he didn't go to prison for that. Um, 1933, uh, he came back to Britain and he's shuttling by this point so he's got a little flat in london he's got a little flat in paris he's got a little flat in brussels and he's shuttling between the three but he doesn't seem to stay around for very long as mentioned he's got no conv convictions in the uk uh he's got his legal jobs uh we know where we like to hang out he hung out in the gay adventurer on dean street a european restaurant under sam's club on little pulteney street which is now brewer street which is where dutch Lair lived uh, also at the cafe royale lion's corner house tea room on marble arch which is where the black eye ripper picked up his first victim and he regularly visited a french ponce's house at five old compton street which only by comparing all the files did I work out that this was where, same year, that Dutch Lair uh, had a wedding reception with Robert Smith. Not Robert Smith from The Cure, obviously. Uh, the, 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 his flat at, in Marleybone, it was small, it was low-key. Uh, he lived there with his little doggy, a little bit of furniture, but it wasn't anything extravagant. I think as the fact that he didn't really live there that much, but also nearer the later part of uh, where we got to in this episode, he uh, he didn't have a lot of money going on. Um, he did have a safety box at Pall Mall Deposits um, where they found about £100, which was about £9,000 today. So he had money hidden away. We just we just don't know why he was kind of going after all these uh, little pieces of money here and there. Um I uh, shall I do this? I may, I may stop here, here. Only because I haven't written next week's episode. Um, 
because I, I write and then edit and then I write and edit and I do it that way and I just um still got a lot to say about Max so uh yeah oh look that's good timing someone has started doing some mowing or something so uh you know you know what I'm like when uh, I'm trying to record this and <laughs> some, some fucker is mowing um, I think that is it. Oh, one thing that I, uh, I didn't put in the episode, but while I was researching, um, around the same time, actually be later, uh, Sir Robert A. Johnson, Deputy Master of Controller of the Royal Mint, where all, um, all Britain's money comes from, uh, died at a luxury flat in Lower John Street in Soho, home of... Uh, Millie Arlette, a remarkable, beautiful young woman who arrived in England from France several months ago. Sir Robert was said to be an old friend of hers, uh, and he died uh, March 1938. Um, Now, when I went searching for this, because I thought, oh, there's a nice connection between kind of um, French prostitutes and kind of uh, people in high places. Um, Almost all the information, all the evidence about this has been removed, because obviously he's quite a a big associate uh he's quite a big a, a big important guy even on his uh wikipedia page which is not a reliable source of information they, it says when he died but he didn't say that he died in the flat of a french prostitute who'd been shipped in the country by french ponces just a few months before um uh, yeah. what else we got i think that's it i think that's it uh yeah let's 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 end that so anyway hope hope you enjoyed that episode another another cliffhanger with with all the other episodes what we've what normally we do is we follow a very logical route and we go oh well it's this guy and we follow how he does this and that but because this has been a mystery for 80 plus years there's a lot to uncover on this so we've still got a long way to go we're, we're trying to follow how the police and resolve it uh, who, who they pick as potential suspects uh, the evidence what's there what's real what's not how how the we've already gone through how the press have kind of manipulated things that shouldn't be manipulated with like like witness statements details it should they should just put out as it is as they do in the first two murders but when it came to dutch layer they started fucking around with it because they're idiots and they want to sell they want to make more money for the newspaper and make a name for themselves so um but uh yeah i think potentially red max could have been like a key suspect in this but he was dead so let's do the quiz questions and now I have a more, another slurp of Diet Coke. Um, question number one. What newspaper is it said that the journalists of the infamous Dear Boss letter worked at? It was The Star, which is a tabloid. Ooh, tabloid newspapers. Brilliant. Uh, question number two. What country was Max born in? It was... So I was just checking that I was still recording. Uh, what country was Max born in? It was Latvia which was then part of Russia. Uh, question number three, what was Max's birth name? It was Maya Cassell. Question number four, what new, what, question number four, what wounds did Max have to his face and body? He had a broken nose, lost teeth, and on his left cheek and neck, he was slashed in a knife fight. But also two weeks before the murder, he had a cut, he'd cut his finger in a knife fight. 
Question number five. Uh, what part of Paris did he run a brothel? It was a Rue Pigali. Uh, question number six. Under what alias was Max deported from France? It was under the name of Kemfesti. Question number six. In which Belgian city? Mm, Belgian buns. In which Belgian city did Max run a cafe and the beginnings of his the beginnings of his sex trade empire? It was Antwerp. Question number eight. Uh, on what street did Max live? Well, I gave that away, didn't I? Uh, James Street. Uh, question number nine. What kind of dog did Max have? It was a white Highland Terrier. And question number 10, what job? Oh, here we go. Um, Suzette, question number 10, French Suzette, uh, Suzanne Boutron, alias French Suzette, what job did her husband do? Her husband, Emile Boutron, was a violin maker. <sighs> Fuck's sake, that was. There we go, that's that done. So that's me done. Four, three more episodes to go, and I think it's going to kill me. I am knackered already. But there we go. I hope you're enjoying it. I hope it's all coming together and you're going, ooh, lots of mystery. Um, so have yourself a good week, folks. Uh, stay safe and be good. Thank you for supporting the podcast. Uh, I, uh, oh, no, I think I'm done. Lots of love, everyone. Thank you very much. <laughs>